Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Singapore's oldest architectural practice, Swan and McLaren, has, after more than 120 years, finally published a comprehensive book of its works from 1892 to today. Uh, joining us now is the author of that book, architectural historian and anthropologist Julian Davison. Julian, welcome to Money FM. Good morning to you, Ben. Oh, it's great to have you with us. This is quite a, an undertaking. 440 pages. You need probably two or three people just to carry it out of the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was some dispute about the shipping from China. Who was going to pay for it? It was so heavy. <laughs> Tell us, uh, give us an overview of the book, Julian. Uh, it, it's quite a, an arc of history for uh, Swan and McLaren. Maybe you start by telling us why, why is Swan and McLaren important? They were always the sort of uh, predominant architectural practice during the British era, from when they when they started off in 1892, and they they hit the the, the road running with a, a commission from the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank on the site that the current Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank occupies today down a Battery Road, and they really never looked back. Um, there was a bit of a tricky period in the late 1920s when they were in in a rivalry with the architects who designed the Fullerton Building, but apart from that, they really enjoyed being the top dog for most of that era up until the Second World War. I mean, it is extraordinary, Julian, how one architectural practice has left behind such an imprint on Singaporean architecture. I mean, I think you've said in your book that the history of Swan and McLaren is almost the history of Singapore's architecture. I mean, just to give some context for our listeners, maybe just give an overview of some of the buildings, that iconic buildings that Swan and McLaren are behind. Right. Well, the most obvious one is, is the sort of central core of Raffles Hotel. I mean, that's an iconic building which is recognized around the world. But they also did the Goodwood Park Hotel, which at the time that it was commissioned was a, a club for the German community. They did the Chastadel Synagogue on Oxley Rise, mm. the, the railway station, um, the Singapore Cricket Club, wherever you look. And of course, most importantly, perhaps the Victoria Memorial Hall, which was a kind of kind of in dedication to the Queen Victoria when she died in 1901. Mm. And what's really interesting is that most of those buildings, the the railway station accepted, were were designed by one man, and that's this guy Regent Bidwell, and he really was Singapore's foremost architect architect during the the late Victorian and and, uh, early Edwardian era in Singapore. Julian, why is that? I mean, why is it one firm, one man? I mean, surely there must have been other architects in town. Why does it, why did, why did it come down to this one firm really got all the, the big projects? Did they have some sort of inside connection to the government or to the, to the, what was it? Do we know? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, they were in the right place at the right time. The 1890s when, was when sort of Singapore changed gear and it was sort of being transformed from a regional entrepot into a sort of world-class port city. So they were in the right place. And actually, no, there weren't professional architects in Singapore mm. up until that time. They did have one great rival, a guy called Osborne, who was very well qualified, but he was only in Singapore for five or six years, and he disappeared, and um, that the left Swan and McLaren, and they had this guy, this Bidwell guy, who was a professionally qualified architect, and the first professionally qualified architect to work in Singapore since the very beginning of the settlement, and a guy called George Coleman, who was a of uh, raffles mm. and he was here up until the 1840s and then after that you know 
the sort of civic buildings, the government buildings, they were designed by engineers, often military engineers. Okay, they were well-versed in architecture, but they weren't the professionals. And Bidwell, quite apart from being a professionally qualified architect, he also had bags of talent. So that's really what made him stand out. And yeah, they were in the right place at the right time. And, and on that point, Julian, the guys themselves, the, you know, the founders, uh, mm. Mrs. Swan and McLaren, two Scotsmen, which upsets me, but we won't go there. <laughs> so you've got these two Scotsmen. They're engineers. They're not yeah. even architects. They're engineers. And they come to Singapore, I believe, with a background in railways. And yeah. yet they end up founding, you know, the most foremost, most popular, most successful architectural practice in Singapore. So how did they do that? Did they have a great eye for talent? Did they have high society connections? How did that come well, about? Yeah, I mean, again, another interesting question. That I mean, I, I don't even know if they really started out to be architects. I mean, as you say, they were railway engineers. They got engineering projects. Before Swan and McLaren, Swan was in partnership with a surveyor. They did a lot of kind of surveying for rubber plantations and stuff like that. And that was the bread butter money. But, you know, as I said, there was a shortage of professionally qualified architects. And McLaren never practiced as an architect. It was really Swan. And he, he, he was okay. He could do, a, he could turn out a good sort of late Victorian classical building. And so that sort of established them. I mean, with, with the, uh, with, with the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. And then early on, they had a guy called Michael, Michael. And, um, he was, he was again a qualified architect. And, um, but he was ill and had to go back to England. And I think Swan, I, mean, I think, Bidwell may have been um, employed to replace him. Bidwell had actually started off in Kuala Lumpur as an employee of the public works department there, and he's famous for the the Indo-Saracenic buildings on the on the Padang in Kuala Lumpur. But because he was a junior guy, he didn't really get much credit, and I think he thought, "Sos that, I'm I'm going to find a job elsewhere." And Swan and McLaren were looking for an architect to replace Michael, and he got the job. Julian Davidson is on the line with us, an author and architectural historian, the author of the new 440-page glossy book, Swan and McLaren, A Story of Singapore Architecture. Julian, take us through how you put this book together. Uh, what was the process? And, and tell us, uh, obviously, I, I would imagine it's more or less uh, uh, a timeline type of book, but tell us a little bit more about the structure of the book and where you got all the pictures and all the information for it. Right. Well, I mean, Singapore is blessed with this incredible archive of architectural drawings, which date back to 1884, which is when it first became necessary to submit buildings, the plans of buildings for planning permission to the municipality. Hmm. Prior to that, you know, buildings have been small scale, shop houses, bungalows, that kind of thing. And they were pretty easy to erect. But as I said, you know, the late 19th century, Singapore was beginning to rise up the ladder there of, of kind of being an important port city. And buildings were getting bigger. And some of them were actually falling down and killing people. So they thought, right, we've got to introduce some kind of, kind of legislation so that mm. we can have an overview of what's getting built. So there's this incredible record, which starts in 1884, and it goes right way through to the modern era. And... I obviously drawings are missing and mislaid or whatever. But I reckon about 75% of the buildings that were erected during that period, which is more than around about 70 years, um, up until the Second World War, they, they have a record of it. And they're beautifully hand-colored drawings. So that's the starting point. We, we know that uh, these buildings exist because of these drawings. And then the other really important uh, sort of 
archival sources, the digitalized newspapers. And in those days, you know, you opened a bank, it was a big deal. So, you know, you got several column inches of the New Strait, in the Straits Times and the Singapore Free Press. So there's a, a marvelous sort of record there of what it was like and how the buildings were received and what people thought of them and how many bricks went into making the Fullerton building, etc., etc. So that's an invaluable resource. And you put those two together and you come up with a 440-page book. <laughs> and having put that book together, you know, what is it, Julian? This is the part that fascinates me about that particular period, 1890s up until the interwar period. What is it, in your opinion, about that architecture that is so structurally sound that so many of those buildings have lasted to the present day? So many of them are so elegant whether they're in a neoclassical style or even an art deco style in one or two cases later on. What is it, in your opinion, that makes those buildings so elegant, so durable and just so impressive? Yeah, well, I think you've coined the, you've said the word, elegance. I mean, they were very elegant buildings. They also had a lot of charm as well. And, you know, when I sort of go downtown and I look across the river, and this sort of wall of glass and steel. It's impressive in terms of its scale. I, I always feel a bit sort of daunted and intimidated, but it certainly doesn't have charm. And that's one for one thing. I always wonder, will it be someone like me 100 years from now thinking, oh my God, there's fantastic buildings that were in the CBD around about 2000. You know, they, I'm so excited to be working on this. Somehow I, I don't think it will be. So these buildings, they, they, they had charm, they had elegance, they reflected the aspirations of the time. And I just like them myself. You know, I just think they're beautiful, beautiful things to behold in a way that a, a blank wall of, of glass and steel um, just doesn't conjure up the same feelings for me. Mm. Talking with Julian Davidson, the architectural historian. Julian, as I look online, I'm just, I was just scrolling through some pictures right now as as you were talking about it. And yeah. when, when we think back at the the later part of the 19th century and we think about some of these iconic buildings that you've mentioned like the Victorian Albert, uh, the Victorian Hall and others, these buildings must have just loomed so large over the, even the the basic shop houses, never mind the kampongs here. And, and was there, was there an important element of a projection of, of power as well? The British empire that, that made these buildings really stand out. I mean, they stand out today because of their beauty, but back then they would have just physically dominated this the scene. Yeah, there's definitely an imperialistic feel to some of the architecture. Yeah, yes. yeah I, mean, I mean, this was kind of um, either governmental or corporate power dressing, if you like. Mm-hmm. And of course, the idiom was classical, and classical architecture was was the was the, the style of empire. I mean, we have the Roman Empire, which invented the, the stuff. And then we have the British Empire, and they're sort of latching onto this idea of, of, of classical architecture as a, as a demonstration of power and might. So there's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. And they were, as you say, very impressive buildings. The Victoria Memorial Hall, the clock tower there, was the tallest structure in Singapore for, for many years. So it did loom over the, over the surrounding landscape like a skyscraper all on its own, like, say, the Empire State Building when it was first built. You know, it sticks up like, you know, you can't miss it. Mm. And Yes, sir, with the Victoria Memorial Hall. And what has really pleased me in doing a bit of research for this, Julian, is I'm always looking for hidden gems in Singapore. And as you know, it gets harder and harder the longer you stay <laughs> in any place. And I've got one, and I haven't even told Glenn about this, thanks uh. to your book. And this is <laughs> The Forgotten Hospital 
off Maxwell Road, near near the Maxwell Food Centre or Angsiang Hill, a magnificent edifice that I knew nothing about until this week, reading up about your book. It has the oldest electric lift in Singapore, this beautiful wooden panelled masterpiece, 90 years old, and it's just sitting there. And I discovered it was it was another building made by Swan and McLaren. Tell us about this magnificent building. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a very remarkable building on many accounts, not least because it wasn't designed by an architect, but by their surveyor. Wow. (laughs) And uh, it was was designed for the the, uh, St. Andrew's um, Methodist uh, mission. It was a hospital, and they had it kind of prioritized um, uh, TB, tuberculosis patients. And that's why it has a roof terrace, because in those days it was thought that, uh, you know, a lot of sunlight was good for TB. So you have sanatoriums all over Europe with these roof terraces, and we have it here. But I mean, it, what, what is extraordinary about that building is, you know, it's very severe in the modernist style. Um, there's almost no ornament. Now, I, I, I wonder about this. You know, was it just because you know they were trying to keep uh, they were trying to economise, so they didn't want to put a lot of uh, doodads on, on the front, or was it you know part of the modernist ethic? And you know, when you compare it to the kind of cube architecture, the, the Bauhaus school and the Deutsche Werkbund buildings, which are contemporary with it in, in Europe, it's very cutting edge. In fact, it predates the Deutsche Werkbund, which was, these are white cubes with rounded corners and, and, the, and the hospital St. Andrews is a rounded corner at the end. And you think, hey, that was four or five years before Deutsche Werkbund. This was cutting edge, not just by Singapore standards, but by European standards. Well, so as you say, it's got the oldest surviving lift. It was not the first lift that was installed in Singapore, but it's the uh, last we have of its kind. And I, you know, I'm very keen that that building should be preserved. There was talk about sort of knocking it down because it was rather ugly. But uh, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm. And just very briefly, Julian, the building is still there. People can see it. It's fenced yes. off, isn't it? But people can clearly see it. I oh, mean, yeah. And it's worth visiting. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really outstanding piece of modernist architecture in Singapore, the first of its kind, and it should be preserved, if only for that reason. Talking with Julian Davidson, the architectural historian, and let's, let's do our last question here on looking to the present and to the future and pre- preservation of these uh, beautiful old structures. Obviously, Raffles Hotel is not going to be torn down anytime soon, uh, as far as we know, uh, but many other uh, beautiful old colonial buildings, uh, even if they're just black and white houses, are under threat in various neighborhoods um, You know, to uh, their owners' uh, tearing them down to build up something that's larger, a McMansion, uh, as they're often referred to. Now, what is your take on, on how Singapore is doing, uh, maybe compared to maybe um, Myanmar, you know, to, to Yangon or to uh, Hong Kong, in protecting its colonial architecture? Well, I, I think it's done quite well, really. I mean, there was this um, kind of uh, symposium or conference back in 1984, and and that was you know for the region that was you know, it was all about the re rehabilitation of old buildings for new uses. So people were thinking ahead even then, and that I think was a very sort of landmark event. And it was a very nice book that which which went with it, which is still in print. It's called The Pastel Portraits. And then the, and the foreword was was written by Roger Ratner, who was the deputy uh, prime minister at the time. And I actually just made a little note of what he said in his foreword because I think he really hit the nail on the head. And he he writes that the history of the city is recorded not only in books but also in its buildings. 
Old buildings are more than just brick and mortar. Old townhouses, shops, temples, churches, etc. They are also a record of, of our ancestors' aspirations and achievements. And I think that's, you know, really pertinent. You know, um, if you're interested in history, you can read a book, but who reads books these days? You know, the pictorial record, it's all there in the archives, but people don't go see the archives all that often. Um, but the buildings are there. We're, of all the arts, it's the one which really impinges on our consciousness. We can forget about paintings. We may not like music, but the buildings, we live in them, we work in them, we sleep in them. So I think it's really important to preserve some kind of record. And, you know, it's obviously got to be selective. The land, uh, the claims on land in Singapore are phenomenal. But without this record, it just becomes another faceless tabula rasa. It could be any place because of the nature of modern architecture, which Mm. is rather faceless. Julian Davidson, the author and architectural historian, uh, the author of the new book, Swan and McLaren, A Story of Singapore Architecture, available now in bookstores and online. Julian, thank you so much for your time today and your insights. A fascinating topic, and we hope to, of course, have you on again. Well, thank you very much, Glenn, and to you, Neil, as well. Great question. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.